Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, with Julieta Kusnir and Nina Serrano. In tonight's program, we'll hear the latest on Venezuela. We'll also hear about the tragic killing of Alex Nieto by SFPD and a community's fight for justice and accountability. Julieta Kusnir speaks with someone from the San Francisco International Film Festival that kicks off later this month. And Nina Serrano interviews Maria de Maruca about a project to collect the voices of California farm workers. We'll mix in music and a calendar of upcoming events. But first, we begin with our weekly series, Updates from Brazil. Stay tuned. are to blame. Brazilians think women should behave in order not to get raped, the poll shows. But Brazilian feminists are willing to take their chances and protest against misogyny. A poll conducted by IPEA, the Research and Applied Economics Institute, started an intense debate about Brazilian machismo and women's rights. Published on March 27th, the survey found that 58% of Brazilians agreed that, quote, if women knew how to behave, there would be fewer rapes. Another 26% think that if a woman is wearing short or revealing clothes, she deserves to be attacked. Even for a conservative and sexist country like Brazil, this number is shocking. The week before the poll was published, the police arrested 18 people for touching female passengers, filming them or simply masturbating at the metro in Sao Paulo. We learned through Folha de Sao Paulo and Estado newspapers that there are groups on Facebook where harassers exchange videos and set up meetings. They take advantage of the crowded public transportation to do what we call encochar, which means to touch the back of a woman's body with their body, mainly the hips. It was also through Facebook that women started to fight back. On April 2nd, 20 of them organized a protest at SAS Station, one of the central nodes in Sao Paulo's metro system, holding signs that said, I don't deserve to be raped, and demanding the authorities keep a closer eye on the safety of female passengers. But what really drew the country's attention was the online protest that started on March 28th, hosted at a Facebook event page. The official hashtag also read, I don't deserve to be raped, and women were asked to post a nude photo from the waist up. Hundreds felt encouraged to do so, and there were even a few testimonials from women who were raped. But there was also the presence of men and women who seemed to represent those 58% that think that women are to blame for being raped. Several comments were posted saying that women who wanted to show themselves like that were, quote, asking for it. Some made fun of plus-sized women who posted their photos and said that no one would want them anyway. Nana Queiroz, a writer from Sao Paulo who organized and managed the event, received death and rape threats. The reaction to the women's protest on the internet was so violent that President Dilma Rousseff made a statement on Twitter saying that this wave of harassment and abuses is a shame on our society. The same IPEA Institute last year revealed that the rate of feminicide, the murder of women, stayed stable even though a special legislation to protect them from domestic violence was approved in 2007. In average, 5,000 women are murdered every year. The Public Security Annuary showed that 50,000 women were raped in 2012, an 18% increase compared to the prior year. But this number might be bigger. Some criticisms were made of the IPEA poll. The Institute did not explain, for instance, why women were 66% of those interviewed in a national sample. The correct number should have been 51%. And the Institute also committed a big mistake when they first published the poll. The first numbers that were out said that 65% of Brazilians thought women who wear revealing clothes should be raped. But that number was later corrected to 26%. Methodological matters aside, the reality is very clear. Women are still not treated as equals in Brazil. Worse than that, they are seen as objects to men's sexual release. But at least some are willing to put their faces and bodies on the line to try and change things, no matter how hard that seems. For KPFA's La Raza Chronicles, this is Diogo Antonio Rodriguez from Sao Paulo, Brazil.
You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm very lucky to have on the line with me Martin Sanchez. He's the webmaster and co-founder of Aporrea.org, one of Venezuela's most important news sites. He's also a co-founder of VenezuelaAnalysis.com, where people can get breaking news and analysis on what's happening in Venezuela. Thank you so much, Martin, for joining us. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Martin, so you dedicate your life really to following what's happening in Venezuela and offering us here in the U.S. a perspective which is often missing. When we turn on the news, if we watch CNN or Fox News, people are getting a a very uh, narrow vision of what is actually happening on the ground in Venezuela. So we have been covering what's been happening in terms of the violence and and the actions of the anti-government protesters. Can you give a short synopsis for someone who maybe hasn't been watching the news and maybe isn't as informed about what's been happening in the last few months in Venezuela? Could you give us a, a summary, bring us up to date? Sure, yes. Actually, it, uh, uh, there's a, a phrase that someone uh, recently used uh, referring to Venezuela to summarize that Venezuela is the only country in which the, the poor celebrate and the rich protest. And uh, <laughs> it, uh, it brings me to an article that I, uh, we published on our site today by my good friend Jesus Chucho Garcia, the head of the Afro-descendant movement in Venezuela, in which he asked, he asked why are the Afro-Venezuelan communities do not protest against the government. And it just pretty much summarizes what's going on. The current government is, is a continuation of the government of the late Hugo Chavez. The current president won the elections by a narrow m- margin last year. And he hasn't been in office not even a year, and the opposition have already been calling for him to, to resign or to get out of presidency. And we had elections, regional and gubernatorial elections, back in December, and uh, the opposition lost. President's party, the Socialist Party, actually managed to grab uh, 73% of the cities, uh, you know, the elections for mayor. So there's a sector of the of the opposition that has been radicalized by, you know, not being able to get to power to democratic means. It's a it's a continuation of the the destabilization campaign that they've been, <laughs> you know, they had against Chavez. And uh, they had its its biggest example in April 11 of 2002, in which they managed to actually overthrow the government uh, by, you know, having months of destabilization and then convincing a sector of the armed forces to rebel against the government. They haven't been able to do that this time. They they have, you know, tried to stir up uh, unrest around the country, but the military remains loyal to to the constitution. So what we had is that in uh, February 12 of this year. The opposition called for a demonstration for a march to the attorney general's office. And once they got to the attorney general's office, instead of handing in a document, which is what they planned to do, they uh, started throwing Molotov cocktails to the, the attorney general's office, which is a federal building in Venezuela. And they actually burned part of the, the front of the building. So that, that unleashed uh, a confrontation between pro-government demonstrators and, and the opposition, and two people die at, at that day. And then th- after that day, there's been they call, they call for more protests around the country, and um, the protests have been uh, only circumscribed to upper class neighborhoods. You know, people who don't feel identified with the the social policies of the government, and uh, and you know they've been especially the youth, the upper middle class youth is the most radicalized and. Uh, so they've been uh, using increasingly militant tactics to uh, block roads, uh, burned buildings, burned buses, and the most deadly and the most the, the one that everybody uh, rejects is the use of barbed wire. They put barbed wire across some streets and uh, to in order to get motorcyclists to crash. And uh, there have been uh, four confirmed cases of motorcyclists that have uh, have fallen into this trap. One of them have actually decapitated by the barbed wire. And uh, yesterday, a girl died because the parents uh, had to take her to the hospital and they couldn't get through the roadblocks because in upper-class neighborhoods, they pretty much blocked the roads and nobody can get in. And uh, in this case, they didn't want to open the barricades, not even for a girl that was sick. And she died right there. She, uh, she couldn't reach the hospital. So this is what uh, the government has been saying as a precondition to sit down and talk, uh, you know, the violence protests have to stop and the killings 
there's been on the government side the, the security forces have actually engaged in in abuse of force and human rights violations and right now there's nine or ten police officers detained by an attorney general's office for investigated for this crime so uh, but, you know, the opposition, on the other hand, you know, they had killed three National Guard officers. There have been a lot of innocent people who were not protesting, who were caught in these barricades and have died. So, you know, it's basically the situation is one of unrest. And uh, a lot of people would say, well, but is there a reason for the protest? And in a sense, there there's the reasons because the, the country has is facing big problems like inflation, uh, high crime, and... Um, housing it's this, in spite of the government's efforts is still hard to to get and so some people are are you know genuinely upset at many things that are happening but the what the majority of people are saying is that look you know we elected this government there are problems they're working to fix them every country has it deals with crime when inflation and so on but it doesn't mean that you had to engage in a campaign to to overthrow the government this is basically what's what's been happening, and uh, as I said before, radical sectors of the opposition became frustrated because you know their attempts at, at gaining power through democratic means have failed because they just do not uh, have been able to convince the majority uh, of of the population to vote for them. So. That's the voice of Martin Sanchez. We are very, very lucky to have him on the line to fill in what's often very much missing. Martin Sanchez is the webmaster and co-founder of one of Venezuela's important news sites, Aporrea.org. He's also a co-founder of VenezuelaAnalysis.com, which offers really essential information for those that prefer to get their information in English. Some of the news headlines today say... Venezuela's Maduro accepts proposals to meet with opposition, and you have been following this closely. This is not new information, so give us a sense of what's happening in terms of attempts to make peace and end violence in Venezuela and placating uh, some of the demands by the the right-wing opposition to the government. Yeah, an important dimension here is the the way that the media has been uh, portraying the the whole conflict in Venezuela. As you, you mentioned, the headline today is that Maduro accepted the proposal to, mm-hmm. to, to sit down with the opposition. And it's actually the opposite, because Maduro, since the, the violence erupted, have called for the opposition to, to sit down and talk about the issues and, and fix them. And, you know, in one hand, the most radical sector, the ultra-conservative sector of the opposition, had completely rejected these calls and had pressure other sectors of the opposition not to engage in dialogue with the government, but uh, members of the business sector actually did sit down with the um, some governors and mayors sit, sat down with the president a month ago, and uh, it seemed like things were going okay because uh, actually the government accepted many of the proposals that were made by them, especially uh, around uh, having better access to currency exchange. Venezuela has a very strong currency exchange system, and it's hard for the business sector to get access to dollars to import things, and uh, so they claim. So the government accepted to to be more flexible in that regard, and uh, and many other measures that were that were proposed by the opposition and by the business sector. But you know the most radical sector remains very uh, strongly opposed until today. Presidents from the Union of, Nat- of South American Nations, UNASUR, uh, went to uh, the four ministers went to Venezuela and they met with the president today, and they actually had this proposal of having the opposition sit down with the president, and the opposition accepted. So it took, uh, you know, foreign leaders to go to the country for the opposition to actually accept to sit down with the president. And, uh, you know, it, it tells you uh, how, how the media phrases things, because now it's like, okay, well, Maduro was finally convinced <laughs> to sit down. And one of the other things, uh, uh, this brings me back to the issue of class in Venezuela, which is at the core of this whole conflict. The majority of information that's coming out of Venezuela comes through social media. And you have upper-middle-class, middle-class kids who are very savvy in the use of Twitter and Facebook are the ones who actually get their voice out. And so you don't get the perspective of the working-class sections of the country that have a very different view of what's going on. So as a result of that, you have these huge campaigns on Twitter by upper-middle-class kids in Venezuela, and that reaches outside the borders of the country and makes a lot of noise. So you have even celebrities like Kevin Spacey, 
uh, you know, join the the opposition and call for Maduro to step down and so on. So I, I would say that the perspectives for dialogue now that finally the opposition accepted to, to sit down are good. The problem is that there seems to be still a, a sector that's very militant, very radical, and probably tied to paramilitary infl- infiltration from Colombia that will not accept to sit down with the government or even stop the protests. We have had uh, the bordering states with Colombia are the ones in which the, the violence has been the worst because the opposition have used uh, weapons like bazookas and rifles and, uh, and so on. I have, you know, killed the most number of, of police officers and uh, innocent people who are not demonstrating. So the government believes that this is because of the measures that have been taken recently to curb uh, the trafficking of, of food. Venezuela subsidizes food. The, the subsidies are very big, so it, it makes it very attractive for Colombian illegal traffickers to go to Venezuela and buy huge trucks of food and bring it into Colombia and sell it, you know, at 10 times the price and so on. And the gasoline is another issue. So the government actually, in the last four or five months, have been really strong in trying to cut into that uh, illegal trading and that had really, you know, uh, gotten to the uh, affected uh, significantly the interests of uh, narco traffickers and, and paramilitaries in the border uh, between Colombia and Venezuela. So that might be one of the the points in which I think is the biggest challenge to deal with that because it's uh, in many of those borders areas this is like lo- uh, a lawless land and it's very hard for the government to patrol and. Uh, so, uh, but I would say uh, I have high hopes in uh, the, the meeting that the government is going to have with the, with the opposition, with the foreign leaders as of the foreign ministers as intermediaries, and uh, also the fact that the, the Vatican even selected a, a person that could be a mediator in Venezuela. That remains to be seen, you know, if that would happen. But, you know, everybody in the country, recent polls uh, have said that the majority of the people, even people who initially supported the protest, they have seen that they haven't worked. And since the protests happened mostly in upper-class neighborhoods, and, you know, they, for instance, burn trees and burn things in their own neighborhood, it's like they're breathing their own toxic gases, and it's not really affected the government. The government remains strong. So the majority of people are rejecting the violent demonstrations and supported the call for meetings. So let's hope that this is what happens. And, you know, as always said, Venezuela is a unique country in which people have many avenues to democratically voice their opinion. Venezuela is the, one of the only countries in the world in which you can recall the, any elected official after they're halfway into their term. So even the president could be recalled. So what the opposition should do is to get ready to collect signatures and demand the recall of the president and just use the democratic tools in the Constitution and stop the violence. That's the voice of Martin Sanchez, along with being Venezuelan. He's a webmaster and co-founder of Aporrea.org, an important news site to get information around Venezuela. He also is a co-founder of VenezuelaAnalysis.com. As you mentioned, Martin, it is really tricky. A lot of the elite that is leading the protests, they're very sophisticated in their use of social media and getting the word out, and they have a very big bullhorn with which they can yell their message across, and it reaches all over the world. So it is rare for us to get information on the ground to get a sense of what Venezuelans are actually thinking. So can you tell us more about your news sites and and what they can expect to find there? Yeah, uh, in the case of Aporrea, we created this site as the website of a grassroots organization that was created two days before the coup d'etat in 2002. People were uh, already predicting that the the opposition were, were going to launch a, an attempt to overthrow the government. So they created this group, and uh, so I created a website for the group. And then a few months later, the group dissolved, and the website remained, and uh, people made it into a news website, and they wanted to send their news, what, what was going on there in their own neighborhoods, and, you know, write opinion articles. This is the main site of debate uh, for the left in Venezuela. So if you, if you want to see what the left, the progressives are thinking in Venezuela, you know, the references aporrea.org. On the other hand, we have Venezuela Analysis, which, you know, we created that in order to have an English-language version. So we uh, created the VenezuelaAnalysis.com to uh, have an English-language outlet similar to Aporrea. 
And so for people who perhaps English is their primary language, what can they find on Venezuela Analysis? Venezuela Analysis is a a site that has a lot of summaries of what the situation in Venezuela is not as continuously updated as Aporrea. It's geared towards people who want to keep up with Venezuela but don't have the time. So there's a lot of analysis. It's emphasis on analysis more than news. That's the voice of Martin Sanchez. He is a webmaster and co-founder of Aporrea.org and VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Thank you so much for being on with us. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with that maybe perhaps they're missing if they're only following mainstream U.S. news coverage on Venezuela? Oh, no, just, you know, as in any other issue that's controversial around the world, I think, you know, the mainstream media often distorts the news, and it's important to check alternative news outlets. And now that the Internet, it's everywhere, it's easier for people to find them. So I would just encourage people to not believe what they see on Fox News or CNN and just try to uh, get the facts. Thank you so much, Martin. We look forward to having you on our program again and keeping us posted. We really appreciate your time. It was a pleasure to be on the show. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Kuznir, and today we're very lucky to have on the line with us Benjamin Baxierra. He is a professor of City College, a longtime activist and artist in the mission community, a poet, an author, and unfortunately, he is now also in charge of uh, another important movement. We're very saddened that he is he's now fighting for justice and working for accountability to address the recent murder of his very close friend, Alex Nieto. So, Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us. Julieta, thank you for inviting me here. I think this is very important that we discuss this and that La Raza all around California uh, know about what happened here in San Francisco a few Fridays ago. Benjamin Baxira, so there are a lot of people listening that maybe aren't so familiar with what's happening in San Francisco right now in terms of other deaths that have resulted because of police violence. You've been a longtime committed community member and just supporter of uh, the mission community through art, through culture work, through education, as a professor, as a as an attorney. So what do people need to know about what's happening in terms of police violence or about changing face of San Francisco that maybe they wouldn't uh, know if all they knew was from the TV coverage? Uh, San Francisco has changed dramatically. I grew up in San Francisco at a time when it was still affordable to live there. One of my old neighborhoods, which was called at that time called Cortland Street, but now is, uh, you know, uh, the new people have now called it Bernal Heights. Uh, that was a working class neighborhood. In fact, it was an undesirable place to live. It was considered the boondocks because it was so far away from, you know, action, getting down to the bus or getting over to uh, the BART station, uh, which is a subway system in San Francisco. And uh, that, in the last 20 to 25 years, that place has become completely transformed because of gentrification. People who now live there are engineers, attorneys, tech-based workers, and they have come into San Francisco with, with this, you know, just gigantic amount of wealth. And unfortunately, uh, many of the brown and African-American people have been kicked out of San Francisco. Alejandro Nieto was one of the last brown faces on Cortland Street in the Bernal Heights area. And when he went up to uh, the mountain on Friday, March 21st, he thought it was completely safe and he had never been in trouble with the law. And he bought a burrito and some chips to eat them 
on the mountain. It's a beautiful view on top of Bernal Heights Mountain. You can see for miles any in any direction, uh, skylines, the ocean, the Golden Gate Bridge. And this was something that Alex did often. He was going to be going to work after he ate his burrito and walked around a bit. Uh, he was scheduled for work as a security guard that evening. Residents from the Bernal Heights area, I'm assuming many of them, most of them have never been security guards. They've never had to have that type of position. They've never been in the military. They've never had to join the military. They seem to have profiled Alex because he had a holstered taser. This yellow and black taser was issued to him for his work as a club security guard. These people didn't see none of the 911 dispatch calls that we have information about so far say that Alex was doing anything whatsoever threatening. In fact, there is one caller from the 911 calls who stayed on the phone as the police arrived. And this person is giving an account of what Alex is doing. And she's saying, she or he, I'm, I'm not sure because we only have the transcripts at this point. This person is saying that Alex is eating chips and he's looking out at the view. And at one point, uh, this person says, Alex now is walking uh, near a chain link fence, but he hasn't done anything threatening to anybody. This person is not saying that he's menacing anyone at the park. He's just going about his business. The police, they received this phone call uh, about a six-foot uh, Latino male in a, a red sweatshirt. And then, now note, that's, those are 49ers colors. Alejandro has never been involved in a gang. He's a security guard. He's an honor scholarship student at City College of San Francisco. It may have been as well that the police immediately profiled Alex as being some type of danger, and they went up to the mountain that evening in a military tactical formation, and it seems as if they had the goal of causing combat on the person that was identified in the 911 calls, even though this person is not doing anything threatening. And so this all seems to stem from just this ignorance that many of the newcomers have about the Latinos uh, who have been there for generations. And so this seems to have been uh, a primary reason for why they called. And then when the police got there, uh, they also reacted in a manner that seems to be inconsistent with uh, police protocol and with just uh, human rights. Um, the news coverage has been primarily ever since um, Alex Nito was killed while sitting on a bench in Bernal Heights in San Francisco, enjoying being outside. And the, he um, he was then shot by San Francisco police. Ever since then, the spotlight has been around what will be the uh, possible violence that will come from the community targeted to the police. Can you walk us through, um, Benjamin, and tell us a little bit about First of all, about Alex Nieto and his commitment to addressing social injustice and, and working towards peace in his community. Alex Nieto was a beautiful soul, a very unique person. Uh, I mean, I've traveled all around the world, and this man was just a, a, a joy, uh, a deep intellect, a passion for giving back to his community. He had received his associate's degree from City College of San Francisco, Longtime San Francisco Bernal Heights and Mission resident. Everyone who knew Alex loved Alex. There's no honest person around who can claim Alex was a bad guy. He had never been arrested in his entire life. This is someone who had a bright future ahead of him, and now he is no more. And the community, not as outraged as they are filled with grief and with a desire for justice. Our chant, our slogan is Amor for Alex. We are not going to approach this from any cliche or stereotype standard. 
We are going to approach this in a way that pays respect to Alejandro's spirit. He was a practicing Buddhist. He loved his community. He loved peace. And uh, we will be uh, approaching uh, this entire ordeal with that soul of his in mind. That's the voice of Benjamin Baxirach. What do you foresee are ways that people listening that either live in San Francisco can work towards this, or also people who are listening that live in the Central Valley or perhaps near Sacramento or near Salinas and are listening and just maybe this situ- maybe the event and his death really resonates and stri- strikes a chord with them and they want to support what's happening. Gente, please join the Justice for Alex Nieto Facebook page. That's the first thing you can do so that you can know what activities are happening. We're going to be having a lot of different activities. We've already had, just in the short weeks this tragedy has occurred, we have organized a vigil. We've organized a beautiful, peaceful procession that I estimate at one time was about a thousand deep. Uh, We've organized a fundraiser, and this is just the beginning. Uh, At the moment, we're finalizing a committee so that we can then spread out to artists, that want to support Alex Nieto, to uh, legal tacticians who would like to support Alex Nieto, to uh, media-based people who would like to be part of this as well. So first thing, join the Justice for Alex Nieto Facebook page. Another thing you can do is you can uh, uh, donate specifically to the family. Unfortunately, Alex was a breadwinner for his family, and now, since he is no longer with us, his family is going through extremely difficult times. They, they don't speak English very well, and uh, they, they're relying on us, the community, to help them get through this very difficult time. So they can uh, go on to the Justice for Alex Nieto Facebook page, and uh, from there you'll be able to see that there is a Chase bank account where you can send checks to uh, for his family. But as I noted earlier, we're also having many events, one coming up this Saturday, uh, April 12th, We are having uh, the Cesar Chavez Parade here in San Francisco, and this is an annual event. At this event, we will have a booth with lots of information on how you can help out in the Alex Nieto cause. Uh, note, Note that if you can't make it to the parade, we'll also be posting a lot of this information on the Facebook page as well. So I have on the line with me Benjamin Baxira. He's a longtime community member, activist, supporter of students, and he has uh, is also a professor of City College and an author and an attorney. So uh, this movement to really to work with love and justice to hold accountable and get some answers for what happened to Alejandro Nieto just a few weeks ago. The news coverage of this movement has been pretty negative. Can you, a lot of these newspaper articles are are trying to paint a distorted picture of Alejandro Nieto's background as well as those that are working to hold police accountable. What have you seen and what are some possible myths that are being pushed out through this coverage? This uh, media coverage about are looking for justice for Alex. It's very interesting that the examiner reported, I think on Friday, that police have received threats. They have not received any threats from anyone involved in our movement. And I don't even understand what an anonymous threat is nowadays. I, I don't see how it's credible to have an anonymous threat with the type of technology that we have. Uh, it seems like a way to plant fear in the community, and also to try to discredit what we are uh, trying to do, which is a work that needs to be done for the community with the spirit of Alex, which is amor love. Now, no, there is no reason for police officers to be afraid whatsoever. They are brave individuals. They have joined the force to serve and protect. In fact, I would request, and I do request, any officer who is there. There's no need to be afraid because
because they know the truth of what happened. We know, we know in our hearts, and I believe it, we almost know it almost as much as a fact that Alex Nieto did not point a taser at officers who were 75 feet away from him. That would be completely illogical. His taser only reached his 15 feet. There would be no reason for Alex to do anything so ridiculous. He was trained on how to use a taser. He was a peace officer himself. So to accept that logic is to accept impossibility. I ask for the police officers who were present there, or just police in general who know about this case, please confess. You know what happened that day. Confession is liberation for a brave soul. Our community will respect and applaud you. Our community will be able to have a more honest dialogue with the police, but it just takes one officer to say that they will stand up for love and for justice because they now know that Alex Nieto was a good, beautiful person. If I can just end with our, our chant, Amor for Alex. Amor for Alex. Amor for Alex. Si se puede. Thank you, Julieta. Thank you, KPFA. Uh, continue your, your great work. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I have as my guest today, Maria de Maruca. She is not only a member of our apprenticeship program, but she is also a producer for Movos, gathering oral histories of farm workers in rural California. Bienvenidos, Maria. Gracias, muy amable, Nina. You said that your name has a story, and since this is about the stories, why don't we start with your story? What's the story of your name? Well, my family name is Maria Esther Morales Castro. As a Latin and Mexican, we have those names very long. So I decided to change it, and I changed it to Maria Morales because I was something concise and something very clean and simple. Then when I thought about Maria Morales, all, all, also I thought about a classical movie in Mexico. It's called Hijos de Maria Morales, with Sara Garcia, Jorge Negrete, Pedro Infante, Javier Solís. So when I introduce myself to people, they tell me, they, I, I, I tell them, Maria Morales, pero sin hijos. <laughs> so they laugh, like you did right yes. now. So that starts you in a friendly relationship right there. Yes, and then I changed it again because I got married, and my name changed to Maria M. Hyphen Opet. Then four years ago, my abuelita died, oh. and she called me all the time Maruca. So in her honor, I changed my name to Maruca Opet. What a wonderful story. Thank you. Covering so many generations and so many traditions. So what is this project of gathering oral histories and oral stories of agricultural farm workers? When I was working for Radio Bilingue, this is 13 years ago in Salinas, I was a radio producer for gathering testimonies in health of farm workers. So I was writing and producing a script in the health issues for them. And I discovered that was a wonderful, wonderful voices. We don't hear about it. Wonderful stories. And it was then they become, for me, a dream to collect those stories. So it, it was exactly there then Mobos was born within me. <laughs> I see. What we aiming to gather is stories that every farm worker and families and individuals want to tell us. And we don't have a specific agenda and a specific way to interview them because we would like to go to the communities and study them first and became friend with the community, friend with the whole community. And then we will structure 
the way we're going to interview them. We have some stories that I have collected for material that I need for our Kickstarter campaign that we're doing right now. And what is the goal of this? Are you going to put them for broadcast? Or are you thinking of them in a book? Or how do you conceive of the outreach? Well, we have conversation with the Library of Congress and archive those stories in the Library of Congress. And? And then also broadcast with KPFA, with Pacifica Network, also with Radio Ibero in Mexico City, Radio Friends and Radio Netherlands, that we have communications with these people. Well, this sounds wonderful. Have you seen the new Cesar Chavez film? Yes, I was in UC Berkeley with friends of mine, and one of our collaborators in the Movos project is Dolores Huerta. So I saw the movie with Dolores and the daughter, Camila. I really appreciate that this material is out there, you know. Yes, and I think this brings more attention and more interest into the stories of farm workers. Absolutely. Well, we at La Raza Chronicles would very much like to air these stories. I know that you're a really fine radio producer, and you've been doing this a long time, and now you've polished your skills up at the apprenticeship program. So do you think we can be a place where people can hear them? Absolutely. And thank you for offering that. I will provide to any programs in KPFA in any format they ask us to do it, five minutes, three minutes of these stories and broadcast them. That is the goal for us. Do you think there's one that we could add today? Yes, I have one today somewhere in my Zoom Well, lucky KPFA listeners, lucky La Raza Chronicles listeners, you're going to get a sneak preview of Movos' interviews with California farm workers. Muchas gracias, Maria Maruca. Thank you very much, Nina. ¿Cuántos años tiene usted haciendo agricultura? Pues ya hasta la cuenta perdí, pero un promedio de unos 22, 24 años. ¿Y cómo fue que empezó con este oficio? Soy mexicana, tercera generación, emigrantes, trabajadores agrícolas. Mi padre y mi abuelo vinieron contratados en los 60s al estado de Texas. Mi madre emigró hace 36 años. Entonces, a consecuencia, emigraron mis hermanos y al final emigré yo. Como trabajadora del campo, toda mi familia, algunas todavía siguen siendo trabajadores del campo trabajadores para otra compañía y por cosas de la vida mi madre se lastimó en, en, en su trabajo y fue deshabilitada de por vida y la invitaron a una charla sobre agricultura orgánica y nos invitó a todos los hijos y sus hijas a participar en esa, en esa charla y ahí fue donde yo escuché por primera vez agricultura orgánica. Entonces, uh, más que, que el interés de ser un agricultor orgánico, fue la, la curiosidad de saber qué era una agricultura orgánica. Todos mis hermanos y mis, mi hermana entramos a la capacitación de tres años y la única que terminó la capacitación fui yo. Estuve tres años en una escuela que se llamaba antes Rural Development Center en Salinas, ahora se llama Alba Organic. Es, dan, dan clases a trabajadores del campo para ser pequeños agricultores orgánicos. Las bases como a manejar equipo pesado, sobre enfermedades, sobre plagas y, y mercadeo. Así es la historia de cómo llego a ser pequeño agricultor orgánico. En aquellos años fui la primera mujer a nivel nacional que dejó de ser trabajadora del campo a, a ser un pequeño agricultor orgánico. En, hace a uh, cuatro años USDA me dio un reconocimiento por mi labor comunitario, mi trabajo comunitario a nivel nacional. Soy la, uh, la primera mujer latina no siendo trabajadora de ninguna agencia, ni, ningún programa del Departamento de Agricultura de Estados Unidos que recibe un reconocimiento a nivel nacional. You just heard the voice of Maria Catalano, a farm worker in California. She's part of Movos, a multimedia project dedicated to collecting the narratives of farm workers in California. Nos tienen pan, otros tienen agua, otros tienen algo
about the 57th annual San Francisco International Film Festival. It's a festival that brings us many films that we would never otherwise have the opportunity to see. And this year, we're very lucky that there's a focus on Latin America and focusing on some Latin American films that um, we know our listeners would like to learn more about. To tell us a little bit more about what we can hope to see and check out this later this month, um, we have Rod Armstrong, who is a programmer with the International Film Festival. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Rod, so this is a really especially exciting year for us. So International Film Festival is pretty massive. There's a lot that comes to town. Um, What would you like to showcase for our listeners and get them to make sure that they have their eyes open for? Sure. Well, there are a variety of ways to refine what the festival offers for each particular experience and what each person likes. The first way to start is just to browse the entire program from our website or from one of our guides that will be all over town. And then just to have in mind kind of the films that you'd like to see. As you mentioned, we do have a spotlight this year on Latin American cinema. We never go out into the world looking for particular themes or for particular films from particular countries. It's when we have the program pretty much entirely set that we notice, hey, uh, look at this or look at this trend. And this year it just happened to be that there was some really exciting work by first or second time filmmakers from Latin America. So, for example, we have the first film from Costa Rica in the festival's 57-year history. It's a film called All About the Feathers, Por Las Plumas, and it's about a man who is really wanting to buy a rooster, not just to have a pet and kind of a companion in a humorous way, but uh, also to just take part in the cockfights that go on in his neighborhood and around his peers. So that's one particular film. From Mexico, we have a wonderful debut film called The Amazing Catfish, which is about a woman who kind of inserts herself into the life of another family because the matriarch of that family is ill. And it's very stylishly directed uh, with a lot of rich characterization. You said that there's a lot of uh, new directors. And for me, the International Film Festival, really what I think about it is it's this really rare opportunity to see things I can't see elsewhere. So what else for you really resonates in that way that maybe our listeners would be excited about that also falls into that spotlight on Latin America? With the festival, you have experiences that can't be duplicated in that even if the film might come out in theaters later, we might have a filmmaker present or one of the actors or one of the cinematographers. And so the opportunity to see it at a festival and to discuss the film afterward and to see special guests is also really what makes a festival particular and worthy of attendance. I think of note to Bay Area audiences will be a documentary called Cesar's Last Fast, which is about Cesar Chavez and uh, the final fast he undertook to protest pesticide spraying going on in the Central Valley. And, uh, of course, his activities and his activism really kind of took hold not only in the Central Valley, but here in the Bay Area. In fact, we have a street named after him. (laughs) That's a film that is particularly timely thinking about his birthday just passing. So that's a right. that's something that's an important time to think about his life. You mentioned that there's going to be some filmmakers actually coming to town and possibly even taking questions from audience members. A couple of people that we do expect to attend would be the director of All About the Feathers, Neto Villalobos. We're also hoping to get the filmmaker from Venezuela. She has a film called Bad Hair, Pelo Malo, and her name is Mariana Rondon. And the film details the life of a young boy who is biracial and wants straight hair and because uh, he has curly, kinky hair. And his mom sees that as a sign that uh, he is effeminate and she has a problem with this. And so it's, uh, it's a really well-dramatized story of uh, the mother-son relationship and uh, a boy finding his own independence. So you've mentioned Venezuela, you've mentioned Costa Rica, Mexico, any other countries that will be showcased? We have a film from Uruguay called The Militant, which is about a student activist who ends up having to go home to his family ranch 
uh, when his father takes sick, and there he has to kind of be the boss. So he's kind of reconciling his personal politics with being thrown into a completely different role where he has to supervise and be the boss of the people he's kind of fought alongside as a student. Then we have from Argentina a unique film called History of Fear, which is also about socioeconomic politics, but on a more uh, surreal and uh, intellectual level. Uh, I would say it's a film more for the cinephile crowd, but really worthwhile. Those are just some of the new directors. But then in our world cinema section, we have Fernando Aimke from Mexico. We've shown his two first features, Duck Season and Lake Tahoe. And his new film, Club Sandwich, is a wonderful comedy about a mother and son kind of taking a brief holiday at uh, a remote hotel that is in its off-season and sweltering by the pool. And then matters get complicated when a young girl also comes to stay at the hotel with her family and uh, develops a friendship with uh, the young boy. And it's just a delightful portrait of adolescence. The film festival is going to start later this month, April 24th, and last until May 8th. What should our listeners know to make sure they don't miss some of their the films they're most excited about? Tickets go on sale to the public on uh, Friday, April 4th. We also will set up a box office at the Sundance Kabuki Theater, which is the prime hub of the festival. We occupy five theaters at the Kabuki. Right down the street, we have the New People Cinema, where we'll also be for the 14 days of the festival. And finally, over in Berkeley, we'll be at the Pacific Film Archive. People can, of course, buy tickets online from our festival website, which is festival.sffs.org, and that stands for San Francisco Film Society, so festival.sffs.org. And the other way is just to come in person the day of the show. Now, some screenings do go to what we call rush because screenings are never sold out at the festival. So even if people go onto the website and find that a screening is at Rush, they still have an opportunity to get a ticket by coming a little bit early to the theater and uh, standing in line and uh, hopefully grabbing one of the last few empty seats. But the festival goes from April 24th to May 8th. We have a big opening night party, closing night. Our centerpiece film actually is of local interest, although not necessarily Latin American interest, based on James Franco's book called Palo Alto about young kids growing up uh, wealthy and uh, perhaps somewhat troubled in Palo Alto. Well, we've had Rod Armstrong on to talk about the San Francisco International Film Festival. Again, Rod, could you give us one last time the website where people can find out more? Sure. It's festival.sffs.org. Buenas noches y bienvenidas y bienvenidos al calendario de las crónicas de la raza. I'm Sylvia Mullally Aguirre. Here are some upcoming events that sound very exciting. Mission in Motion at the Brava Center for the Arts this Sunday, April 13th at 3 p.m. Mission Academy of Performing Arts MAPA presents a spring showcase of the youth training programs that make up MAPA at Brava with performances by Cuicacali Escuela de Danza, Marsh Youth Theater, Loco Bloco, and Los Chiles Verdes Salsa Band. The afternoon will bring together MAPA's brilliant teen ensemble of multidisciplinary dancers, actors, musicians, and technicians for a showcase of the work they have been doing this year. That's Mission in Motion at Brava Theater this Sunday, April 13th at 3 p.m. Brava Theater is located at 2781 24th Street en el Barrio de la Misión. Y para más información, go to www.brava.org. This Saturday, April 12th, Connect the Dots Refinery Corridor Healing Walk from Pittsburgh to Martinez. This is a first in a series of Connect the Dots Refinery Corridor Healing Walks. Connect the Dots will occur over 
a four-month period with one walk each month to bring attention to the Northeast San Francisco Bay Refinery Corridor consisting of five refineries in four cities. Pittsburgh is the site of a proposed oil terminal that would bring up to 100 rail cars per day of highly flammable crude oil through Pittsburgh for distribution. The opening rally in Pittsburgh will take place at the Pittsburgh Marina Park at 9 a.m. and will include representatives from Idle No More SF Bay. The walk will begin at 9.30 a.m. The public is invited to join the walk at any point on the route for any amount of time. To join the walk as it is taking place, call 510-619-8279. In San Jose on April 9th at 7 p.m., come learn what Richmond Mayor Gail McLaughlin and her city council are doing for the people of Richmond. And this will take place in San Jose at the Laborers Local 270, located at 509 Emory Street at Coleman in San Jose. For more information, call 408-775-6837 or 408-460-2999. At La Peña Cultural Center this Saturday, April 12th, Bay Area Flamenco presents Direct from Spain, Living Legends of Gypsy Flamenco, Miguel Funi and Juan del Castor. For more information, go to www.lapena.org. Y para esta semana, esto ha sido el calendario de las crónicas de la raza. Yo soy Silvia Mulally Aguirre. Ha sido un verdadero placer. Gracias. Chao. On Tuesday, April 15th, La Peña will be holding a film screening of Shift Change, True Stories of Dignified Jobs in Democratic Workplaces, a new film by Mark Dorkin and Melissa Young. The screening will take place at 7.30 p.m. at the Cultural Center, but be sure to go early at 6 p.m. for the pizza and pastry pop-up provided by Arismendi Bakery and Café San Rafael. For more information, go to lapena.org. That's L-A-P-E-N-A dot O-R-G. Also on Saturday, April 19th, join La Peña for its International Revolutionary Skype series. The theme of the evening will be Portuguese anti-austerity struggle from the general strike to today. The event will take place at 12 noon at La Peña Cultural Center. For more information, go to lapena.org. That's L-A-P-E-N-A dot O-R-G. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. If you've liked tonight's program or want to share it with others, you can go to kpfa.org or like us on Facebook at La Raza Chronicles for updates on news, arts, and culture and upcoming programming. Hasta la próxima. Thank you.